0: There's no better time to become a member of the DSR Network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's the slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein We've got the boats and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel.
1: These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells didn't catch people's eyes. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Words Matter. Uh, you may notice, uh, as you listen to voices, or if you if you look at any of our video feeds, that you'll see a different beautiful, bright face uh, that is not Norm Ornstein. And I can't tell you how happy and pleased I was. Norm is doing uh, lots of things, including going to weddings, being out of the state and country to do some other work. and and uh, this is somebody we've been vying desperately to have as a guest on our podcast. And we took the time that Norm was out to have none other than the famous and wonderful and brilliant colleague Lori Garrett, who's a friend friend to myself, Norm, the deep state kind of network, David Rothkopf, and and is someone who in her own right uh, has commanded an audience, not just across social media, but is a sought after expert on many things, not just science and biology related, but Lori is uh, very articulate and passionate about all of the political occurrences, which is why she is a perfect co-host for this week for Words Matter. And Hopefully we will get into, knowing Lori, we are not going to stick to any script, nor that not that we ever have on Words Matter, but Lori, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. And we were talking just freehanded before we started recording about uh, what Lori was interested in, and as I expected, it was a little bit of everything. So we're going to call today's episode the kind of uh, a little bit of everything from Lori's wisdom episode, because that's exactly what I hope it will be. Lori, welcome. Glad to have you for the first time on this podcast, but I know you and I have been together on other ones before, but thank you for coming.
0: It's so great to see you. You know, you were one of the people that helped keep me sane through the worst (laughs) of uh, COVID when we were all going bananas and couldn't believe how much our own government was screwing everything up and uh, needed to be speaking with smart sounding boards, people who got it, who understood and well- Thankfully, there you were over uh, and over well, again. Well, same,
1: same, same. At, at, back at you, and we can have another conversation about uh, kind of how the media has uh, covered or not covered COVID. So we can definitely get into. I think there's a lot we can get into, uh, and and I would love to let you, as we're recording this, it it there is no question that I think. And you and I have probably one degree of separation, maybe more directly for, for you, Lori. I, I have f- friends that are Americans as well as Israelis kind of in country, in Israel. And, and so it would be really kind of naive and, and just dumb if we didn't spend a moment. But maybe something to kind of offer would be a little bit of context. You, you've made some interesting comments, I think, about this time, this moment, this tragedy, this terrorist acts that are unfolding and kind of some of what's been used, um, kind of as the geopolitical forces. And interestingly enough, I think you and I were about to talk as we decided, let's just hit record. Um, what is Donald Trump watching and doing or not saying? Because I thought it was very interesting how on MSNBC, um, just Monday morning, Tuesday morning, the MSNBC kind of 6am to 10am hour, kind of that morning Joe hour. I won't lie, Lori. it was, you know, Ron DeSantis, uh, Barry Weiss, like they had a number of conservatives who were kind of offering, you know, just their perspectives on what Joe Biden should do, what Joe Biden could do. And not one of them were asked, nor did, you know, anyone kind of say like, well, have you heard from like, the presumptive nominee for your party, of course, Ron DeSantis wouldn't have answered that question, but Vivek Ramaswamy, all these other people, as well as Barry Weiss and other kind of known conservatives, not one was asked about what Trump was doing or not doing, and I thought that was interesting. But tell me, tell me your reactions, Lori, and just kind of what's been in your mind and heart lately.
0: Well, Kavita, I have been tracking the changes in Israel over the last year pretty closely, and. <clears throat> With colleagues that are far more steeped in Middle East politics than I, um, looking at what Bibi Netanyahu and Ben Gavir and their associated uh, ultra ultra right wing, ultra conservative um, constituency were trying to do to Israel, and you know you have to recall we're o- you only have to go back two months. And you're seeing mass demonstrations where, in some cases, in excess of 5% of the total population of Israel was in the streets at a given moment protesting against Netanyahu. He has a a, a truly illegitimate government, uh, one that it's not clear he really won re-election or what the heck happened. But by trying to destroy the independence of the Supreme Court of Israel, defying the nation's constitution, if you will, and setting up an apparatus where he can appoint at will uh, people throughout the Justice Department. I mean, it's kind of Donald Trump's wet dream, you know, it's what yeah. he wants to do to the American Justice Department. So we need to keep in mind that uh, not only was there massive protest inside of Israel, um, and that many, many members of the Reserves especially high-level officers, in protest to what Netanyahu was doing, were refusing to do service. They were at -at stay-at-home in protest. And across the medical system, there was increasingly protest against the ultra-conservative edicts coming out from the Ministry of Health and in, in alliance with those who were uh, angry about what Netanyahu was trying to do to the Supreme Court, um, they were out in the streets joining in the protests. And there were uh, walkouts from hospitals and clinics and so on all over Israel. So you had already well before things explode in the last few days, you had a really divided nation. And in many cases, major newspapers like Haaretz were speculating that civil war was about to erupt in Israel. Um, and you know you have to keep in mind, they have a different situation than we in that every single person essentially does IDF service, the uh, Israeli defense forces, unless they are of the ultra Orthodox and then they get a waiver and they don't have to serve in the military. So it is not, You know, they don't have a sort of professionalized volunteer military such as we do. And every single citizen is armed, uh, but armed by the state with a a sense that you're there to protect. So when things were so broken down and so divided in the last several months in Israel, um, needless to say, a lot about the IDF seems to have gone flaky. In the process, um, and a lot about uh, the behavior of settlers. Uh, they were expanding into the West Bank, more trying to exp- take more real estate. Tensions were rising. Um, things were getting uglier between uh, the settler communities, which tend to be very right-wing, and the uh, uh, Palestinians on both sides of Israel. Um, and I guess we should remind listeners that Palestine is not a single nation and it is separated by the entire Israeli state between the two parts of Palestine. The part of Palestine that's always been the most left wing, if you will, or however you want to phrase it. I don't know if left and right is really appropriate, but at any rate, um, militant is run by Hamas and they're in this thin strip of land with about 2 million souls crammed between Egypt and uh, Israel Um, and with all, even before everything broke out, pretty much everything going in and out of that strip of land was somehow controlled by either Israel or Egypt. So there was a lack of free movement and of goods. And well before uh, the latest episodes, the health community all across the Gaza was complaining about lack of medical supplies lack of trained personnel. Um, There were issues around everything from basic child vaccination to water uh, purification and testing. Um, So all the sort of essentials of public health were already problematic in the Gaza, so much so that WHO, the World Health Organization, had issued reports on the matter, as had quite a number of humanitarian organizations and UNICEF. So that's how things set up and then you have this absolutely horrible nightmare unfold over the last several days and uh, you know you've seen all over the world um communities struggling to decide what their position is can you actually support the beheading of children can you actually support uh, armed men walking into a grandmother's bedroom and rousing her out at gunpoint and parading her through the streets of Gaza and conversely can you actually just support the carpet bombing of Gaza city by the israelis so we're in a situation where both sides are it's it's going to get uglier and uglier and uglier and it's not just that the death toll is rising the trauma toll which means all the health system is becoming um, enormous to the point where both israeli and um, Gaza hospitals are complaining we're out of supplies. We're, you know, our, our personnel need to get some sleep. We need more people. We need everything. Um, and all of this kind of, to me, symbolically came to a head when I saw a video circulating and I'm very, very careful now because there's so much false imagery, lies, disinformation on social media right now. You want to, anything you hear just uh, when I heard beheaded baby, I said, okay, that's probably a lie. That's probably disinformation. And I didn't want to post anything about it until I had seen it cross validated multiple times. And then eventually president Biden himself described the horror. Well, the same with this video and I don't speak Hebrew. So I had to rely on Google translator and so on to understand what was going on. But, uh, an official delegation from the Ministry of Health in uh, Jerusalem came to one of the uh, kibbutzim that was attacked uh, two days ago uh, to see the conditions of the hospital and the hospital patients in the waiting room. And then eventually nurses and doctors screamed at them and ordered them off the property uh, and they were shouting, "You have ruined our country and um, you know you where were you when we needed you? Where were you when uh, the, the halls were filled with blood? Uh, I think that there are going to be reverberations from this across Israel f- politically that it, It's a game ch- it's as big a game changing moment for the politics of Israel reverberating all the way down into things like the structure of its health system, as was the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And uh, on the Palestinian side, uh, you know, we're talking about people that have been in hardship in both the West Bank and Gaza for years and years and years. I've personally been in, you know, Israel and I was uh, years ago, spent time in, the so-called 1947 community in Jordan, which is people who lost their land in the original formation of Israel and consider themselves refugees, even though now they're three generations out. Um, And everywhere you see the hardship and the public health issues and the stress on their health-providing systems. So even through our lens, you and I, looking at the world through public health and medicine, we can see uh, the inequities and the horrors of what's unfolding.
1: Yeah. And and maybe a good way to kind of also put that in context, Lori, is you were one of the first people to kind of talk about Israel being at the lead, at the forefront. Granted, they were the ones that uh, approved and kind of launched the Pfizer vaccine earliest uh, amongst the global partners, including the United States. So they have been, their universities, their clinicians, their scientists have been the lead authors on probably every seminal, you know, New England Journal of Medicine article that kind of cites efficacy, experience, um, looking at kind of compare and contrast amongst kind of age groups between those who were given the original vaccine and boosted, those who were not boosted, etc. cetera. So uh, I think it's just worth reminding people that, you know, not only will the reverberations kind of in the health and public health arena, but, you know, think about what this is doing to kind of the scientific foundations from which we've taken for granted, quite honestly, some of the learnings of COVID.
0: One, I think, Kavita, one of the things that's just so powerful in this moment is that we are watching ever since uh, Putin invaded Ukraine a year and a half ago, we are watching the deterioration of, all global networking systems, particularly all the ones dealing with humanitarian issues, global health issues, uh, development issues, all the things that were the sources of the great optimism that led to the creation of the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015 and the notion that we were actually going to eradicate extreme poverty on this planet and address climate change. Gee, weren't we, you know, filled with happy little roses and uh joyous uh, views of the future it looks so naive now i mean at this moment it looks like uh you know the u.n the unga the united nations general assembly was just a month ago here in new york and uh, you could feel the desperation of trying to save the sdgs you could feel the desperation of trying to have anything work anymore in the u.n and essentially the security council is dead because the permanent members can have veto power and they never agree on anything. So Russia's one of the permanent members. China's one of the permanent members. The United States is a permanent member. Needless to say, just those three alone on the Security Council means somebody vetoes everything. Um, and so you have a, an excellent Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, former Prime Minister of Portugal, um, desperately trying to keep the UN dream alive, the notion of coming out of World War II and solving problems as a global community and creating institutions to address specific global issues such as the World Health Organization, such as UNICEF, the Children's Fund, such as UNESCO to deal with education, and so on and so on. And then the Bretton Woods agreements that created the funding institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF, which are uh, meeting in Marrakesh. And everywhere you see a sense of desperation by the leadership trying to keep any of it actually functioning. And on top of everything else, I mean, just because this is the kind of way my mind works now, it's polycrisis. There's never one thing to focus on. It's always... This impinges on this, impinges on that, and you know, it's a mess. It's a gamish, excuse me. I throw some Yiddish in because we're thinking of Israel. Um, but we never have a single issue to focus on. And now we're looking at the worst climate summer in global history, or at least in the history of known global records, uh, the hottest summer Um, A summer that was so hot that even in the Southern Hemisphere in their winter, they were breaking heat records. Fires and floods and massive catastrophic storms and so on and so forth. And we're walking right towards, uh, four weeks from now, the uh, COP28 round of negotiations on climate change. And where is it? United Arab Emirates, the sixth biggest oil producing nation in the world. Uh, And a key factor in OPEC and all the price fixing and controls of uh, levels of pumping the crap out of the earth to burn and turn into destroying our atmosphere. And it's being run by the head of the largest petroleum company, the nationalized company of, uh, of UAE. So you have a CEO oil executive running the COP28 negotiations and he's pretty much made it clear setting caps on how much we pump out of the ground not open for discussion so if we go through this list and we just ask what does it feel like to be a human being alive today uh say your age not mine I'm an old lady but put them in your box and you've got kids how old are your kids six and eight six and eight six and okay eight, yeah. you've got a six-year-old uh when that six-year-old gets to be 26. It's going to be 2043. We'll be in the middle of the century. And I hate to say it, but I don't think we will have met any of our climate goals. No, we won't. I think the planet will be a terrifying place to live. And we will see all the polycrisis implications of that, which we're just looking out the window seeing today on a comparatively modest level. So just think of this summer of the political events and the climate-related events, and are quickly trying to put COVID in the rearview mirror and pretend it never happened, and uh, are no lessons learned, no money devoted to any real pandemic preparedness globally or even nationally at all. And then our internal massive domestic crises in every single one of the most powerful nations. Germany's barely being ruled. Uh, The UK... Is in a a, a virtual state of political civil war. Um, and the latest round, I mean, the UK is now saying we won't even abide by our COP21 agreements. We're, we're, we're going to go back to burning oil like crazy. Uh, you've got very weak France leadership with all the repercussions of the decolonization fights go- and wars and coups going on in the former French colonies in Western Africa. So we watched eight countries topple their leaderships, all of them francophone. Uh, and, and Macron is absolutely on the sidelines going, I don't know, help me out here. And of course, Ukraine. And then Nagoro Karambakh, we had this giant genocide unfolding, an ethnic cleansing as all Armenians are just purged right out across the border. They're in Armenia, you know, several million people. And uh, you know, we can keep going down the list of these horrors and on top of everything else, we're all conveniently forgetting Afghanistan. We're acting as if Pakistan is actually has rational political leadership. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. uh, India You know, Modi just keeps turning that country more and more Hindu first, Hindu first, Hindu first into a giant Hindu nationalist state. And, you know, an incident occurred that in any rational time, even as recently as say five years ago would have been major front page news. And I don't think most of the listeners even heard about it. And that is that on the eve of the G20 summit, which was convened in India by Modi, China released a new map of Asia. And in that new map of Asia, they absorbed a huge amount of northern India and made it China. Needless to say, Xi did not show up at the G20 summit. And by the way, they have not issued new corrected maps. So you look around the world and you say, where do we start? How do we rule? And you come back And this is going to be my last thing I'm going to say in this giant chunk of spiel by me and leave, I'll pass it over to you. But that you look around the world, you say this level of complexity of how each crisis hits another one and another one and another one so that you can't come up with a singular solution set. You have to figure out where's the money going to come from for this solution set, this solution set, this, and everybody turns and says, it's going to come from America. Well, we have a leader right now who actually is, um, has a really skilled staff, a, has appointed people who believe in governance, has an agency after agency after agency across the government, has, you know, People who could be running Fortune 500 companies, real talent is in there managing transportation, the rollout of our infrastructure act, all the, and the for trying to deal with repairing the damage that Pompeo and Till, uh, Tillerson did to the State Department to respond to all these international crises and trying to keep DOD in shape. And what have we got? We've got Trump over here just today. He said, I would have done so much better with this whole Israel mess. You know, I mean, they're weak. They're weak, those Israelis. And uh, Netanyahu, you know, I mean, you know, he slighted me. You know, when we saw him back in the past, he wasn't nice to me. So, I, you know, I don't know, Bibi. Uh, I, You know, you guys haven't shown appropriate fealty to me. So I'm not on your side. I'm not saying I'm with Hamas they're just devils, you know they're yep they're they're evil but you know I'm not really there for you either and I don't know if we should really put a bunch of money behind you and Ukraine hey, you know Russia has a right to some of its old land, you know you're not gonna try and get them to get back Crimea, are you? yeah, my pal Vladimir, you know he's a decent fellow and then finally his acolytes are destroying and paralyzing the house. And they have this jackass, Tuberville, Senator from Alabama, who's blocking all the shifts and appointments in the Department of Defense at a time when we need a strong United States military. And when you hear the right saying things like, well, why don't we send special forces over to Israel to help them? Well, why don't you appoint the heads of special forces? Why don't you appoint people to the Joint Chiefs of Staff? shut up. So that's where we are, Kavita. I love it. I love it. Lori, Lori (laughs) is, I I
1: love that uh, only Lori Garrett can cover global, political, climate, energy, you know, health, uh, and, and, and end it on what I think is like the best truth bomb, which is we are doing everything possible to kind of undo what little progress we've made. And I agree with you, 2043, hell, 2024, I mean, 2020, 30, 2040, all these initiatives we have for, you know, what all the things we were supposed to have done by 2020 on healthcare, none of it's happened. And you can say, yes, COVID, we were never even going to do it if COVID hadn't occurred. And we're now set back so far. So I I can't help but um, comment, since you mentioned the G20, something that has not come out publicly and I think it's because the media has been struggling with how to cover it. Um, there have been on Twitter you'll see some video but it, it didn't get the attention I think it deserved not only did Modi not, not only did you not see um, China kind of at the table, but what you also didn't realize is that Modi in a, in a city with millions of people for the G20 took Delhi and a city that on any given time day hour there's always somebody outside there's always something happening in the streets basically told that the kind of people of the city you must stay in your homes. If we see you outside, we have the right to arrest you. And so the vans and the caravans taking like kind of G20 leaders and all their entourage, including the media, the press, by the way, which included like Pakistani press covering the G20 for, for the United States and for other countries, people of Pakistani origin that they were, it was just countless video of like empty streets. And I will say like, it's, just because my family is from the region that Modi came from the state of Gujarat. Like that guy's a thug at best. I mean, and and it's very disturbing because this Hindu nationalism, there's nothing in like Hinduism. I was raised in a Hindu household. There's nothing about Hinduism that puts people kind of at odds with each other, the way that this is occurring or demonizes Gandhi. Like there's just a crazy, unfortunate kind of parallel to what's happening in the United States, to what's happening in the Middle East, to what's happening in, well, let's put it this way, Lori, it feels like it's happening everywhere. It doesn't feel like we're alone anymore. So maybe we can turn. How's this? We're we're going to do two topics. We'll end with COVID because I think you get a lot of questions. So do I. Where are we with COVID? I'm going to let you have kind of the last word after I do that Tell me, I I know you've got some thoughts about Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan and kind of what's unfolded where it seems like Jim Jordan was defeated. And sure, maybe by votes, you can say that. You, you, you discussed kind of what's happening in Congress or what's not going to happen no matter who comes into the White House in 2024, Biden for number two or potentially a Trump administration again or somebody else named to be, to be determined that we haven't seen emerge yet as a front runner on either party, to be honest. Uh, but but give your th- reactions to um, how some of the issues you just framed out in light of now, st- it's less about Steve Scalise, in my opinion, and it's more about what the kind of state of the house is and how they're being held hostage by Matt Gates. But tell me your thoughts on kind of Steve Scalise kind of, you know, being a speaker, and what that could mean for now between now and you know the next election cycle.
0: Well, I think we're in the mess we're in for reasons that actually predate Donald Trump on the political stage. I think we're in the mess we're in because the Republicans um, made a what we can now see as a very smart decision on their part about 20 years ago, that the way they were going to eventually deal with the abortion question and deal with um, prayer in school and with gun rights and all the things that had risen in the Reagan era to the top of an agenda of a party that once had been about big business, right? And it was transformed into this wackadoodle party where it's just a series of like a, a like a chinese menu you know one from column a one from column b all sort of values issues right i have the value the right to carry an ak47 um that th- what they decided about 20 years ago was that the way they really get there was to take over state legislatures and they targeted um you know the the southern states especially and states in the rocky mountain west and said, "We're taking over the legislature, and we're going to install Looney Tunes—these people that came right out of, you know, somebody's prayer group or somebody's, uh, uh, you know, take over the libraries organization or uh, anti-abortion group." And th- so you had everything from the Texas state legislature to North Carolina—you name it—you had people getting in there. And getting political chops, figuring out how to run a bill, how to block a bill, all these sort of basics of gerrymandering, et cetera. And a lot of them were, frankly, truly bananas. And from that pool, we saw come people who got elected to national office. Uh, and they're bringing those tactics to national office. So one of the tactics that became a really big deal in state legislatures was to block essential bills that affect, say, an entire budget or all the schools or all uh, job promotions for all state employees and things like that, sweeping legislation that normally in real time would just be voted through as a matter of routine by your state rubber stamped and the governor would sign these would get blocked demanding that uh, an attached bill be passed with them. And those attached bills would be Looney Tunes, like every single classroom must open with a prayer to God in public schools. Or um, there can be no distribution or information about birth control given to anybody under 18 years of age, under any circumstances, and on and on and on. Some of them would pass, some would not. Then along comes Trump, then comes January 6th, and a lot of these state legislatures get filled with insurrectionists. And they proudly they know the only way to go forward is to be a Trumpster. And they proudly echo everything Donald Trump says, and anything Donald says in passing at one of his crazy extemporaneous 45-minute speeches to a mob. They say, well, that's an idea. Let's write legislation about that. Let's write legislation about that. And um, then it becomes that the litmus test is, do you agree that that Donald won the election? And you can't go forward in your you know, state Republican committee and in your state legislature unless you have said absolutely. Donald Trump is my president. I don't respect the legitimacy of the current government. So now, where are we? We're in a situation where dozens and dozens of essential bills in both the Senate and the House, but especially the House, are being held up by people putting provisos in, whether it's Tuberville trying to block everything for the military. The United States military, which used to be the one thing the whole right wing could support, right? Right, right, exactly. Now we're blocking it because (laughs) the military might allow money to be spent for a pregnant officer uh, to go to another state to get an abortion. Um, So it's better to have the United States vulnerable to a Russian nuclear attack uh, than to allow one woman to have access to reproductive health crossing state lines. And we have um, Rand Paul in the Senate blocking one thing after another, all because he wants the Senate to basically, um, you know, hang Tony uh, Fauci from the highest rafters uh, for his alleged great sin. And he wants all kinds of documents that he claims exist proving that the United States government funded or actually made the COVID virus.
1: Yep. It's uh, it's uh, and you, Lori. I think in, you've got kind of a, you know, nice like email group that you send some of these messages to. I think uh, one of the ones that struck me visually, and I think you may have pulled some of the images off of either local because you are very good about trying to secondary source things and not just believe what floats on your social media feeds. The protests in California against Fauci and like how popular they were. Not only that doesn't shock me as much as as I haven't seen that many signs since I've done like kind of like abortion care and I've kind of seen like the lines that form and the groups that are forming around um, reproductive clinics. And so it reminded me of that, like that kind of mob, like signs of like kill Fauci. There was one that I think you sent around where if you look in the back, it says hang Fauci. Like there's just, I don't know, just bizarre. And and, and so maybe, maybe uh, here, maybe we can put some, let's end with like some positive i'll say a silver lining covid is not behind us um but i've been pleased to see not that covid hospitalizations still lead in our kind of threat of respiratory and kind of viruses that we're seeing so it's it's still a critical hospitalization deaths particularly even amongst vaccinated and boosted individuals with other chronic conditions so that's just a reminder to everyone to get boosted if if they haven't and fit into the category of being concerned about getting sick, which should be everybody. Um, but I was I was pleased that there have been at least attempts by the Biden administration to stand up that office they had. I'm looking for silver linings here. So we're looking at rates of the virus, and we haven't seen them yet get to where I think they might be pointing to with other countries reporting 286 kind of in circulation and, and increasing in numbers. So I do expect we'll see a winter surge Um, But then I do think it's the Biden administration kind of being ham, kind of hamstrung by Congress is trying to do what they can. I don't think it's fast enough, but I was pleased to also see the RSV vaccines coming through. I'm not happy at how insurance is causing those issues to be blocked, but there have been some like positive bright spots in all of this doom and gloom. Or at least let me ask you, Lori, where are there some bright spots in your mind? And then also some caveats. And we can end there with words of caution at thinking that COVID is behind us.
0: Well, COVID's not behind us, but, um, and we still have, it's still definitely mutating, evolving. Just the latest reports and sequences coming out from several nations reported to uh, say the open source uh, viral sequencing data bank, um, highly, highly mutated new forms of the virus uh, coming out. So I think each time that we look in the rearview mirror and say, bye-bye COVID, um, COVID right. evolves. And we forget right. that we're dealing with, you know, basic principles of natural selection underway. So we're throwing drugs at COVID that are only partially effective. We're throwing yep. vaccines at COVID that do not stop transmission. And we're allowing circulation now because we're not wearing masks and we're not, I mean, not all of us are not wearing masks, but most of the population is not wearing masks. Right. And yeah, even yeah. CDC has said it's even, you know, kind of like you could do your hospital can decide you want your nurses to be masked or not. Yeah, it's up to you. So we're, we're, and we don't have databases anymore. Uh, CDC's taken a lot of the tracking off their websites. Um, uh, hospitals are not required to report certain things. So, and if I look globally, I, I just recently returned from South Africa, and I had a chance to spend time with uh, a really exciting research team at the University of Stellenbosch. Um, this is the team that discovered the Omicron virus. Remember that was that was the one that evolved out of nowhere, seemingly, and suddenly was the responsible for the gigantic second surge of COVID in over the last three years. Um, and um, this you know, these, these folks have set up what I think is the model for where we go next. So, you know, Americans, we tend to always think that whatever we're doing is the right way to do it and we're we're the best. And in fact, when you go out, um, you know, especially in developing countries like South Africa, people are like, you guys were pathetic. You had the highest death rate on the planet. Why should we emulate America? Stop coming, stop acting like your appropriate foreign policy in the global health space is to offer up your expertise. What damned expertise? Don't throw your CDC at us. Respect that we did better than you. So South Africa, you know, their response was brilliant, actually. They had a very low death rate, certainly far lower than we. And why was that the case? Because First of all, they had a huge background of HIV and experience of dealing with AIDS and a vast infrastructure of public health that was set up to deal with tuberculosis, AIDS, and malaria across South Africa and other infectious diseases. So they never, like us, got so arrogant as if if to act like infectious problems were somebody else's, not us. We're we're too advanced for that, right? And And they have an infrastructure that goes all the way down into the townships, into the village level, across the country. So COVID comes along and they immediately activate that infrastructure and say, everybody, keep your ears and eyes open. And then they set up this spectacular genomic laboratory at University of Stellenbosch. And inside, I mean, this would be the envy of any biologist in the world. I mean, people who visit it. Like myself, say, "Wow, I want to work here. This is this is how it should be," and they understand that you have to integrate environmental sampling, wastewater samples drawn from hospitals, um, and then general, you know, patient sampling. You have to integrate that to find constantly look for missing viruses, for mutations, for new viruses that may come. Unexpected from sources you didn't imagine, as COVID did. And so, not surprisingly, they're the ones that found Omicron, not because it was in circulation in South Africa. It was not. It was actually found in a traveler at the Johannesburg airport. Um, but they were the only place where the integration of all forms of sampling went straight to a central spectacular laboratory where, you know, the highest tech possible machines are 24 7. Uh, testing and screening multiple samples coming up with their RNA or DNA sequences as a case may be, and then matching them against known sequences and determining, Oh my God, we see. So for example, that lab like that, faster than our CDC could ever have done, identified that a new mutant strain of falciparum malaria, I mean, it's not falciparum, sorry, a wrong, wrong thing of, of Yersinia. Jeez. Uh, I'm, 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 um, I have to put my brain on re- rewind. Sorry, blah, 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 back. Okay, <laughs> that a new form of vibrio cholera had emerged in Malawi, and as it, and it took a huge toll last year across Malawi. They spotted it. They identified the genetic difference. That was that had went straight to whether or not the vaccines would work, and straight to what kind of antibiotic treatment might be most efficacious for the patients. And as you know, as a physician, treating cholera is really tricky because when the cholera vibrio dies, it releases this really powerful toxin and poisons the human body. So treating with antibiotics can actually make the patient worse if you don't know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing. Yeah.
1: And uh, certainly it's, it's interesting having done work or- in other countries, because they're used to seeing it and they're ready to screen for it, so I was um, the first person who was about to say, "Oh, we should do antibiotics." They're like, "No, this is cholera." No, 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 this is cholera, baby. No, this is cholera. <laughs> this is and a nasty one. And you don't and you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, basically, I was like, "Oh, you know, we had to prevent them from going into the sepsis. Let's give them antibiotics." And so it was, uh, yeah, no, you're, you're, um, well, Lori. As much as as much as I'd like to say that I feel better after talking to you, I'm, I'm. I feel better for having spoken to you. I don't know if I feel better about our country after <laughs> sitting in, yeah. and that's okay. I think I think that uh, maybe the connection that we're all seeking. I think a lot of us are talking about this kind of offline with you, with um, friends. Like, how do we make meaning? Especially, like, just how do you make sense out of what's insensible? I felt that way actually when Kevin McCarthy became speaker. To be honest, <laughs>
0: after 15 rounds of going through that, and when, and and when the key vote was a guy who's now under, mm-hmm. what, 21 indictments? Indictments, 21 in uh, Our Long right, Island right. congressman. 20,
1: Should we call him Ravash? Ravash? I don't even know what his name is. Well, Do no, no, nobody name does. Really is? Nobody does. So I, I agree. And so I I thought that's when we were kind of, wow, I really need to understand meaning in life and connections. I actually went back. That was a moment that for me... It, I had been um, reading books like yours. I I had been a consumer of nonfiction just because of the chaos of COVID and wanting to kind of get back to reading science and truth and facts and and separating it from fiction. I have been reading fiction because it's just not possible. It, It is impossible to get through the newspapers, to get through news and not feel this like pit in your stomach, this sense of despair. And so what I appreciate about our conversation is we're not, trying to we're not trying to put rose colored glasses on anything and if in fact we're actually encouraging people to take them off because i think you're illustrating that just focusing and maybe focusing on donald trump too much we're missing the forest from the trees to your point that started before that if we're focusing on israel and and what's unfolding from terrorist actions in the gaza strip we're missing what unfolded before that and and that holds true for palestine too so i think there's a lot to hopefully listeners Well, pause, go back, listen, pause, go back and listen, because I think there's a lot of like really important themes that have come out that I know we're going to benefit from on Words Matter. And I'm going to be so bold as to invite you back kind of whenever I'm going to tell Norm that uh, I think we found an incredible partner in, in pushing our thinking. He's the one that often does this for me because he spends an incredible amount of time like thinking through, as you know, these issues. And talks about them very publicly, which which I think is important. But you you really do give us a you give us a healthy dose of what we needed, and and I thank you for that. So with that, I want to thank Lori Garrett, our incredible co host for this week, and thank all the listeners. And I'll just close with kind of a a, a true like reflection that. It is OK to turn off all of the media, social media, real newsfeeds, fake news feeds, whatever your feeds might be, if you need to, because of when Lori talks about kind of the images that she went back and had to actually kind of validate and verify. And lo and behold, many of the horrible ones are validated and verified. You wouldn't be human if it didn't get to. you. So I do think that it's OK to kind of stop and regroup. And I hope that that can be a prescription for everybody. I also want to thank our incredible producer, Riley Fessler and our executive producer Chris Cotnoir and the next episode of Words Matter will be please share this one but the next episode should be in your in baskets around October 19th thank you